What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is David Walker. David is a clinical psychologist and mixed-blood Cherokee Indian who has worked for 13 years with the Confederated Tribes and Bands of the Yakama Nation in Washington State, and for more than four years worked as a psychologist for the Indian Health Service. David is a singer-songwriter and a writer whose latest book is called Tessa's Dance, and he is also contributing for a forthcoming book, on the historical trauma and racist mental health practices in Indian country. So welcome to Madness Radio, David Walker. Thanks so much, Will. I'm so happy to be here. David, thank you for joining me on the show today. And it's also very personally meaningful for me to have you um, here with me today because I'm also mixed blood Indian, Choctaw Indian, and the Choctaw and the Cherokee are actually historically very closely uh, connected. We were on the, our ancestors were on the Trail of Tears together. Right. And there were many trails of tears. And that's what we need to remember, because there were lots of journeys that people were forced to undergo, uh, moving out of the uh, eastern seaboard and being pushed off their native lands and into the hills and then beyond on to Oklahoma and those kinds of places out to Indian Territory. And these experiences are directly felt today in the mental health problems and difficulties in Indian country. And that's one of the things we're going to be talking um, with you today on on the show. And I just wanted to ask you, how did your own uh, sort of journey begin to to come out to Washington State and work with the Yakima tribe? Lewis Owens, who uh, was a wonderful uh, writer in Native Studies, uh, I believe out of University of Oklahoma, or it might have been Oklahoma State, wrote a lot about uh, mixed blood and uh, the mixed blood position on the frontier between Indian and white. 60% of uh, enrolled American Indians in the United States have mixed blood heritage. Uh, some of us can't enroll and are, are what we call disenfranchised from being uh, federally recognized as Indians. And there are entire communities uh, that are, are not enrolled. The term American Indian and uh, the more politically correct term of Native American are themselves a part of the racist lineage uh, of academia. Uh, They are creations. They're uh, actually constructs and words that come into the language in our borrowed language uh, that does not uh, effectively depict the 566 distinct uh, culturally uh, sovereign nations in the United States that are federally recognized and probably about 100 more that are not federally recognized. So did you go through a personal psychological process in claiming your mixed, um, mixed race heritage and your identity as Cherokee? I absolutely did. Um, As a matter of fact, from the time I was five or six years old, my uh, grandmother, who was born in Stella, Oklahoma, she uh, relocated to uh, Hendersonville, North Carolina, and uh, many is the summer that we would come visit and go to the uh, Akana Lefty Village at Eastern Band, Cherokee. Uh, and she would in- introduce herself uh, to the guides there as as a potential relative and sometimes would be met with somewhat um, mixed or ambivalent responses in doing that. And it was some embarrassment sometimes uh, 
to my parents uh, when she would do that. But uh, she was always very forceful and assertive about that and uh, sent me uh, a, a beautiful, a, a fully fringed jacket when I was about seven years old, which I wore until my uh, arms came out of the sleeves. And uh, it sent me on a journey that uh, involved a lot of searching. And uh, when I came out to work in Indian country, kind of became fully concretized. So I felt that I could really claim my own family connection to our heritage, however people want to put that or whatever uh, people want to think of that. That's so interesting. That makes me think of my my mother, um, where my own uh, Choctaw heritage comes through my my mother's lineage, and she was also very proud and very strong about having that identity, although there were many people in her family who were ashamed or tried to hide that or, of course, wanted to pass as white because of the bigotry and the racism that people experienced. So I'm very grateful to my mom for having that that pride and that strength. And, and David, did it, did it help you personally with your own life problems or maybe mental health issues in, in claiming that identity? Did you find improvement in your own sense of well-being from really having that sense of who you are? Certainly the identity of being uh, mixed was a part of my own upbringing. It was uh, throughout my adolescence. I was wearing a hat that was just like Billy Jack's. As a singer-songwriter in the 90s, I became involved in a group in Detroit uh, called Dreamcatchers, and uh, we did a lot of work um, performing to benefit Native American causes, including uh, American Indian Tribal Colleges and, as I recall, Leonard P- uh, Peltier Defense Fund. But these kinds of things were part of an internal journey that I was going through, uh, where I've really kind of arrived at a balance these days, where I see myself very much on this this frontier space that Lewis Owens refers to, where I, I really feel a strong kinship and a strong friendship uh, and a strong sense of alliance. I, I don't... Uh, you know, make a sort of formal claim uh, to, you know, some sort of uh, tribal standing or this sort of thing, but I'm very uh, identified with, with my heritage in that respect. So let's talk about some of the the impacts that uh, colonialism and racism continue to have today on uh, American Indians in the United States, because in terms of the economic indicators, the poverty, the kind of extreme social problems, and also mental health problems, American Indians today are, are really continue to be very severely oppressed, and that's one of the things I think that mental health professionals face when they're trying to address uh, Native issues. And, and let's just talk about what, what is the scope of that problem? What are the challenges that, that American Indians are facing today? Well, you know, one of the things that happens when uh, I begin to talk about these kind of issues is it becomes somewhat of a litany, almost a laundry list of uh, problems in Indian country. And I'd like to pre- begin by uh, trying to uh, send out my, res- my uh, uh, feelings of respect and honor for Native people in the uh, tremendous strength and cultural resiliency that they've shown in the face of um, really relentless oppressive forces. And when I say that, um, uh, simultaneously, I can uh, turn to my elders, and um, uh, I know that I would feel a lot of affirmation in saying that we have major problems in Indian country with, uh, you know, uh, such a high degree of poverty, the highest degree of poverty of any ethnic class in our country. Uh, we have the highest suicide rate, especially among young people, where it's the second leading cause of death for American Indian identified individuals between the ages of 10 and 19. 
We can turn to other forms of violence, that being self-violence, and, and think in terms of the high uh, percentage of uh, Native women who suffer uh, from violence, uh, 50% higher than uh, African-American males in the United States. Uh, and so these are just some of the problems when we really uh, nip into that and we look at the mental health, so-called mental health practices that come towards Native people from the outside, outside their communities, uh, a kind of uh, practice uh, that comes towards them that uh, in, in many respects disregards and uh, disempowers their own cultural traditions and uh, tends to revise history in terms of locating a pathology in their brains or in their bodies without uh, respecting the fact of their psychosocial environment and what they're dealing with and the oppressive forces that come at them every day. So you mentioned a lot of the, the problems that people are facing. What What is the roots of that? Why is it that um, we can trace this to colonialism and to imperial expansion in the United States. How has that impacted the communities? Uh, Eduardo and Bonnie Duran put out a, a book about 15 years ago uh, called Native American Postcolonial Psychology, in which they proposed six eras of uh, trauma, intergenerational trauma and grief, from invasion to economic competition uh, to war. Then we have uh, the reservation period, the uh, boarding school period, and termination period. And these are can be sort of traced chronologically, but uh, they tend to be very uh, much very resonant uh, with people in Indian country who uh, see things going on with, with their Native brothers and sisters, especially in uh, with respect to intergenerational effects in families. And these are the kind of things that people grow up with. So when we want to look at something, for example, that's been uh, a really big subject of revisionist history has been the so-called genetics of uh, susceptibility to alcoholism among Native people, which is a complete complete farce and a, a pseudoscientific idea. Uh, there's no no truth to uh, the uh, the pseudoscience behind that claim, but actually there's a, a lot of truth to the idea that uh, from a colonialist perspective there was a concerted and conscious effort on the part of early uh, colonialists to uh, get uh, Native people addicted to alcohol uh, and to uh, develop a, a market economy that they could distribute alcohol readily to and that passed, uh, that that susceptibility that we're that we're talking about is entirely socially based and intergenerationally learned. That doesn't mean that it's not a powerful force. But there's been some decent studies that have showed that Native people become involved in alcohol consumption, uh, do so in response to feelings of powerlessness. Uh, that alcohol indeed makes them feel more powerful, or to sedate uh, some of the reactions to the things that are going on around them, such as poverty and uh, displacement, chronic unemployment, and many, many deaths. The life expectancy of Native people is the lowest in uh, among ethnic groups in the United States. So uh, one thing that I have observed in working with Native clients has been um, the frequent deaths in family, uh, close family, that that's, uh, ensue in people's lives over and over the, the, these kinds of things go together, but uh, the the message from the mental health systems has typically been uh, a one of uh, genetic susceptibility, inferiority, brain problems, uh, this sort of thing. So that's that's the pseudoscience that's that's revisionist of that uh, these colonialist events that have happened. You also said that the um, attention deficit disorder diagnosis is really an update of the idea that Indian children are feeble-minded. It's a continuation of the same message. 
In the 1920s, uh, with the American eugenics movement, which was shared with the British eugenics movement, there was a concerted effort within tribal boarding schools to demonstrate the inferiority of Native children. This is one of the first places where psychology really uh, cut its teeth in an applied form in instituting and uh, researching the use of intelligence tests in order to prove the inferiority of these children. Being labeled feeble-minded was uh, one of the kinds of labels used back at that time. It was a lot of people have forgotten, I think, that the word mental health comes out of the mental hygiene movement, which was a, a component of the eugenics movement. And so when this happened, the feeble-minded uh, label kind of took off, and this was a, a label that was applied to a lot of Native kids, and I, I think very uh, unfortunately internalized it to some degree uh, within tribal communities and also within the minds of providers to tribal communities that a Native child shouldn't receive the very best in e- education from both a uh, traditional cultural standpoint and from a, a Western standpoint and didn't have the highest potential uh, that they could reach When we see these days Native children diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh, aside from their their potential cultural learning style being completely obscured by that label and by the various things that go on in their lives that maybe are brought about by uh, the stresses uh, within their environment, we we also do that same task of uh, pathologizing them as individuals, of saying that that they have children with damaged brains. And uh, this is a kind of message that is not really a new one. It's actually an old one. It's the same kind of message that's been given to Native people for hundreds of years now. So you think the mental health practices of today are essentially an updating of the same colonial racist practices that have characterized U.S. history towards American Indians? In Indian country, the the primary provider of health care is the Indian Health Service. The Indian Health Service is obviously connected with the federal government and is a descendant uh, provider from the public health service. Uh, The public health service mandates that providers use certain best practices in providing services. And and one of those practice standards is to let a person know if they come in complaining of feeling depressed, uh, to let them know that they're suffering from a chemical imbalance. And that the first line of defense in that chemical imbalance is to, to provide them with an antidepressant. Okay, so this is a standard of practice. It's a very strong strongly based medical model approach. It also is completely fallacious with respect to the science behind it. It's a disregard of the lived context and the humanity of a people who have suffered oppression for generations. Uh, These are descendant practices that also have to do with the socialization of providers in how to think and what to think about with respect to providing mental health services. And it's unlikely that the federal government itself uh, is capable of formulating or talking about an approach to that which it has itself inflicted upon Native people. So this is much like a perpetrator trying to formulate what's wrong with the victim. Part of the problem, what you see there in the Indian Health Service with respect to these very confined models around labeling people with DSM labels, r- labels based in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, as they get these labels, they begin to develop a sense of stigma among Native people, which we know interferes with attempts to obtain employment and other things. 
those practices are, are descendant from the same practices that happened in the 1920s and 1930s. In fact, the same kinds of things that happened at the Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians, uh, which was closed in 1933, the only uh, lunatic asylum in the United States, so-called, uh, that actually was specifically set aside for the incarceration of uh, Native people. You said that um, treatments for attention deficit disorder, so-called attention deficit disorder, really ignore the cultural learning style that Native people may have. Tell us a little bit more about that. Cultures differ in their approach to learning and teaching. But I would say that one of the observations I would have from my own experience at Yakima Nation is that uh, children are taught in what we would call an apprentice-style learning, where you work with someone in an active way as they model the kinds of things that need to be learned as they show and tell and talk about what's being done, and they provide you with an opportunity to try out a behavior that needs to be learned. So when we put children into the public education system where they face a sort of stultifying, form-based, sit-in-your-chair, do-these-tasks kind of things, uh, don't incorporate the same kind of learning style, it's a fairly major adjustment for these children. And in addition to that, they may uh, show a kind of defensiveness around their own cultural stance. So children can be aware and youth can be aware that this is not part of their world, this way of learning. There's been some uh, discussion uh, out of Evergreen State College, uh, Charles and Castanino's work, uh, looking at the idea of something called oppositional identity, where a child in the educational system will, uh, for sake of retaining their identification with their home cultural community, will retaliate against efforts to teach them in such a culturally unfriendly way by simply sort of shutting down and closing off to school. In uh, many of the public school systems, there's a, a sort of a, a standard approach towards assessing children who might end up in special education. And ADHD, a diagnosis of ADHD, automatically will make a kid eligible to for special education services. Often the psychologists, and particularly people from an educational psychology background, will apply general tests of intellect and academic achievement to Native children, arguing that there are, for example, Native children included in the normative sample for those tests. If you actually look into uh, the category, for example, in the Wexler tests that are used in IQ testing, you look into the category that contains Native kids, it's actually a category that has an unusual name. It's called Other, and it puts them alongside uh, children from an Asian background, uh, children from Pacific Islands, and lumps them all together. And when you really break out the uh, the number of Native children who were used, you see a very spotty approach where families were probably paid to actually put their children in those studies, and it's very a poor representation of children in Indian country, and not to mention the fact that it, that it lumps all Indian kids from 566 and more distinct communities into one r- racial category, which is in itself a racist presumption. So the testing that is done to identify kids as having ADHD and other problems claims to have included Native children in the development of the test, but you're saying that's actually a fraud. It's, it's not only a fraud, but it continues to be perpetrated by psychologists who think that they can somehow interpret these tests. The tests in and of themselves are often intrinsically culturally biased. But what, do, what ends up happening is kids end up in a special education classroom who could be helped in other ways. They're, they may not be mainstreamed as they're supposed to be. They get the message. Believe me, 
they get the message that they can't learn what they're uh, being asked to learn. They're turned off to school very quickly. We have 50% or more higher rate of dropout in the high school era in the Lower Valley uh, in Yakima Nation area. And we also have kids from Indian country being the least represented ethnic group in post-secondary education. And so I see just it's another facet of the intergenerational continuance of uh, misapplication of psychology and psychological principles that undermines the future of Native children. You mentioned earlier about the suicide rates being really high among American Indians. Suicide uh, is especially high among youth in Indian country, but I don't want to ignore the fact that we have elder suicide and we have suicides among the general adult population. There's been a lot of thinking about that over the years, but not a lot of really effective intervention in trying to help reduce the suicide rates. I've been pretty actively involved at Yakima Nation in trying to work with the community to think about those kinds of issues. There are things that can be done, and uh, there are things that involve a greater amount of community dialogue. What you see um, in particular is it's very difficult subject for people to talk about. The grief and the level of hurt often doesn't get talked about. Uh, and so uh, we have prevention programs that are out there. You know, I would really challenge those who are involved to demonstrate how their utility and how effective they've been because I don't think that they've been particularly effective. Uh, many of those programs are funded and overseen by the federal government and involve a lot of particulars and a lot of sort of homogenization, that's what I would call it, of models that are imported from other places uh, where they don't really work in the particular community that they're being brought into. So there's been some effort through circles of care and other uh, initiatives to improve the amount of dialogue with uh, the community itself about suicide issues. I still don't think that there's very much as far as empowerment in looking towards the importance of culture and cultural restoration, restoring and strengthening cultural identity in relation to school and in relation to the tasks of young adulthood. Native youth have to uh, very frequently talk about having to navigate in two worlds. And so they are uh, susceptible to um, countering feelings of helplessness and hopelessness as they move up against uh, systems that are chronically against them. And, and kids will uh, very unfortunately uh, give up. It's also true that um, we do have an instance of instances of cluster suicides where uh, we'll have one or uh, two kids take their own lives, and then because of the interconnectedness of the community, kids who are cousins or know these kids who are close to them will uh, then kind of go over the edge and take their own lives. So this just adds to the horrendousness of the issue and the problem. Uh, so I don't have any you know sort of quick solutions to that, but I think we need to speak openly about it, and I do have the permission and support of the elders. I consult with to uh, talk uh, very openly about this challenge in Indian country. This has been a very difficult picture that we're looking at about this, the difficulties and challenges and the continued violence and emotional suffering that's going on in Indian country. And you and your work, when you moved to Washington and began working with the Yakima Nation there, you started to develop some very innovative programs. Tell us about that and tell us about what is some of your vision and the things that you've been talking with other folks in Indian country about. What are some solutions? Like, some, What are some ways forward to move us beyond the limitations of a legacy of colonialism and violence and, and towards something that really truly starts to address what is one of the, the most shameful and, and overwhelming parts of, of, of the society in the United States, the way that we're treating American Indians. 
I've been more or less very fortunate in being allowed to be not only challenged, but re-socialized by my, uh, my native friends at Yakima. have helped me over the years to understand the situations that they face and have uh, really, in many respects, I've been sort of taken under the wing of uh, several people to try to understand uh, what I'm working with. Um, I had to really kind of deconstruct and undo my own um, models and ideas as a psychologist. And I'm so grateful for the process of relearning and kind of deconstructing where I was coming from that um, I was kind of allowed to, to go through and in becoming, uh, you know, an active part of the community and being welcomed uh, into people's homes and going to sweat lodge in uh, being part of ceremonies, being invited to namings and even being invited to uh, not uh, not just one funeral. I've always felt very um, welcomed and helped to try to understand what's going on. And I think that that's a, a beginning point that we need to do a lot more of for, for providers. I received no cultural orientation whatsoever when I came into the Indian Health Service. There was no attention to my role or what I would be about from that perspective. I was basically left to my own devices, so I was really fortunate actually that I got into so much trouble and ran into so much uh, hostility uh, as I kind of pushed back on the medical model that was in the Indian, in the Indian Health Service and then ended up being sort of received by, in, by open arms in, in the community. So uh, if we look towards that and we think in terms of, you know, what my vision is, my vision is a shared vision. My vision is a collaborative vision. My vision is that people who are from outside the communities who are coming in as allies need to work in close partnership and be ready to open their minds and their hearts to um, ways of thinking, ways of understanding behavior and feelings and, and work in a way that's very friendly to the ways that are already there and the resiliency and strength that has been there through so many years. I was very fortunate in, in being part of a community effort to respond to the plight of quite a lot of Native youth at Yakima where um, we had youth who were running away and living in the orchards and didn't have any place to go. They would get picked up as status offenses and uh, often be housed at the tribal jail, which was an absolutely horrific place. And so we worked all together, and I was able to help bring in some uh, other community partners, uh, the Enterprise for Progress in the community from up in Yakima and the state of Washington Department of Child and Family Services. And we developed funding for a, a residential facility that was basically a temporary foster care model. But we also were able to put into that uh, home programs such as the Daughters of Tradition, Sons of Tradition, which are uh, through white bison programs. And we also put in uh, language programs, which were very, very uh, well received by the kids there. Uh, and the kids really connected up with these cultural components as they were receiving counseling. We had a very uh, a strong uh, pushback model on uh, you know psychiatric models. We didn't use any medication. We used uh, a lot of love and responsive behavior and helping to de-escalate kids who had been through a lot of crisis and tragedy. When you say you put in a number of cultural programs in this foster care center, how did you do that? What were those programs like? 
Well, the programs they, themselves, this program, by the way, was called Niktawak. I'm probably saying it in very poor uh, Yakima fashion. Translated, it translates in the borrowed language, what we call the borrowed language of English, into good growth to maturity. And uh, my uh, good friend, my uh, Kala, my adopted grandma, Levina Wilkins, who is the uh, head of the language program at Yakima Nation, composed a set of traditional virtues. Uh, we have virtues like Kuyam Timta, which means uh, honesty, uh, Timnaknik, which means uh, extending from the heart, more or less compassion, and an Yaichunal, which means uh, courage, you know. And there's, there's nine of them, actually, there's 12 now at this point, basically one for each month. But we help the kids learn all of these and as sort of a centerpiece for them to connect to in their traditional ways as to how to behave as a human being. And the program was short-lived. We were able to help about 12 uh, youth, um, but we kept them out of the tribal jail. Um, uh, one of those youth, by the way, uh, went on to college. Um, we've had a number of those youth that we've heard really good reports on. It was a very, uh, from that standpoint, I think it was a success, although I was the one who ultimately had to pull the plug on the pl- program because we didn't have adequate funding. So I had to walk away from that, but I stayed uh, on contract with the nation and did uh, continued to be in a consulting relationship as they took over their own mental health functioning and found founded the Yakima Nation Behavioral Health Program. And that's a really great thing that when tribes are able to take over self-management of their own mental health function. But I think I should be very, very clear that when they do that, they have to propose a model of care that literally duplicates what the Indian Health Service uh, already does. Uh, They have to use the Indian Health Service manual in the setup. They can add on to it, but there is still that very strong biopsychiatric medical model embedded within what tribes uh, try to um, take over self-management of. So the self-management kind of piece becomes somewhat of a mythology uh, from that perspective. They're encouraged to develop their own mental health systems independent of the Indian Health Service, but still they're required to basically just duplicate the business as usual in a lot of ways. Yes, and this is very unfortunate because uh, they will then move towards a grant-type-based interaction with Indian Health Service, and Indian Health Service will have the role of approving augmentations to the models that they use. Uh, So there is some room to be flexible there, but at the same time, the Indian Health Service has been, uh, has not received a funding increase in over 25 years uh, in the face of massive rises in in healthcare costs. So what you have is a system where the Medicaid dollars uh, become the primary uh, source of funding uh, to offset the lack of uh, sufficient appropriations through Indian Health. And once we're uh, dependent on Medicaid funding, then we have a whole other model that comes into play of meeting Medicaid standards for provision of services. And we've moved to, then you're moving to uh, basically a community mental health approach that has no recognition of Native American culture or or any of its caveats uh, embedded within it. And uh, is also going to emphasize very short-term medication-based stigma and label-based kinds of approaches to responding to to people dealing with uh, primarily with uh, oppressive experiences. David, tell us about your novel, uh, Tessa's Dance. 
Um, Tessa's dance is a kind of a, it is a form, from my perspective, it is a form of my effort to make intervention. And the intervention is not exactly going towards the Native community. It's going to people outside the Native community to alert them to the kind of issues and things that especially youth deal with on the reservation and using the template of my own experience at Yakima Nation. So uh, we have somewhat of a curmudgeon psychologist in there named Rhett Barlow. Uh, we have a strong-hearted, strong-willed uh, Yakima Indian girl named Tessa Mia. Uh, that's my effort to put together a word from the Yakama language that would mean love child. So she's come from a tough background. She's been through a, a lot of traumatic experiences. She's been in the foster care system. And the two of them meet and form a fragile but uh, important kind of bond between each other as they uh, try to help her migrate through the world of uh, native youth gangs and methamphetamine and the kinds of things that she's facing on the reservation. Now, this novel really came about because when I attempted to write a nonfiction book, uh, which was going to be called Speaking in the Borrowed Language, uh, Mental Health Practice as Cultural Oppression in Indian Country, I uh, made a proposal to a prominent literary agent in New York, and I told her of my design was to uh, take Native American mental health literature and show how strongly it is disconnected with the experience day-to-day of Native people, with some rare exceptions. And I was going to do that by sharing some of my anecdotal experiences at Indian Health Service. And she strongly cautioned me that I was um, in line to be sued if I went along with what I was intending on doing. So she said, why don't you fictionalize your experiences? I decided initially that I was resistant to that. And then I got laid up by some health problems and got started on the book. So the book has been finished, and it's been, I'm, I'm very glad to say, I, I approached it with some nervousness in positioning it before my Yakima friends, but it's been received with a lot of uh, good feeling, and people seem to really like it in the Yakima community itself. They, and they feel that it really reflects uh, the experience of at least some, if not a lot, of their youth and what they have to face, and Tessa becomes sort of a, a heroine uh, who represents, in a way, and then uh, for people who have no familiarity with the experience of uh, Native people in a reservation-based community and their youth, it becomes uh, an eye-opener, I think, uh, at the same time as I hope I've told a, a, a good story of uh, people. It is somewhat of a thriller. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the book. You said that it really reflects the struggles of uh, Indian youth in the Yakima Nation. Yeah, um, you know, probably one person, I, one character in the book I could mention other than Tessa is Jack Bree. Jack Bree is a um, biker type guy who uh, comes from a European background. And, you know, uh, with all respect to um, European descendant people, I constructed a, a person who uh, is kind of our villain, where he's coming from. He is a hustler of native women, he's a troublemaker, he's a, a drug dealer, uh, and he's a gun runner. Jack Bree, the character, is based on certain uh, kinds of uh, criminals that actually have. Uh, been part of Native American experience. Um, we have had uh, probably 15 uh, uh, unsolved murders at the uh, Yakima Nation of uh, Native women. Uh, there's been uh, some uh, question as to who was, uh, you know, who was involved in these in these murders. Whether we were um, dealing with a serial killer or maybe several serial killers. The responsible people for enforcing uh, law around felony-level crimes like that is the FBI. And uh, the FBI and uh, Native people have had a very poor relationship over the years, especially since the Leonard Peltier incidents at Oglala 
and uh, also since Wounded Knee, these kinds of crimes that, that are per- perpetrated, especially against uh, Native women, I wanted to sort of reflect some sort of way of describing the outsider crime coming towards um, Native women in particular and the threat there. So I created the character of Jack Bree to do that. I also created uh, good white people uh, in there as well. But um, we had to have um, some way of describing um, what people are up against, and Jack Bree is sort of the the symbol of that. In terms of um, Native people surviving and continuing to grow and thrive and and continue into the future, what are some of the strengths that they draw on? I, I think it's spirituality has been an important part. Can you tell us about what it is that helps the survival of these traditions and these peoples? Well, you know, I don't really care what study you look at uh, in, in Indian country that has to do, uh, that was, is more or less an overview study of what kind of works, quote unquote, with helping Native kids and Native families. But um, uh, restoring connection, uh, restoring cultural uh, ways uh, reconnecting with one's heritage in a positive way, uh, these kinds of interventions, anything that that supports that kind of approach, that's the single strongest preventative for emotional and behavioral problems in Indian country. There's no, there's nothing really that approaches the effectiveness. If you want to talk about the so-called evidence-based movement, there's very strong evidence for restoring uh, and supporting uh, cultural identity and cultural connection and community interdependence and connectedness in Indian country. Very strong support for that. So everything that I tried to do as I worked on Niktawak and uh, worked in other ways has always been to recognize the strength of the community and especially the strength of uh, eldership and uh, the wisdom of the ways that have been there. Even if those ways have to some extent been corrupted or uh, been uh, interfered with, leaving it uh, towards Native people to figure out how to reconstitute and reformulate where they want to go in their future is very, very critical. There's a a wide variety of spiritual ways and spiritual paths. It would be kind of a romanticized misconception from outside, if you're not familiar with Native people, to think in terms of, you know, some sort of dances with wolves fantasy uh, along those lines, which dances with wolves is clearly a very strong fantasy. But at Yakima Nation, what you have is you have... uh, the Indian Shaker tradition, of which there's basically um, two uh, kinds of styles of uh, Indian Shaker movement, an amalgam of Christianity and traditional spiritual beliefs on Yakam Reservation kind of put together into one religion. It came through a series of visions that were had uh, had by a, a man named John Slocum in the late 1890s and uh, has taken off in not just Yakima in the Pacific Northwest, but also in many, many commu- Native communities around the Pacific Northwest. We also have uh, the Seven Drums uh, tradition or Washat Longhouse uh, tradition on the reservation. And there's other traditions as well. There's people who are very strongly Christian and there's a strong Christian community at Yakima Reservation. But it's not, it's not what's reflected in the, the sort of romanticized depiction in film that, that is uh, sort of another form of a sort of eye candy revisionist history, although I think Dances with Wolves is a very pr- pretty movie. One of the tools of extermination of Native people has been suppressing language, and it seems that that's a very important uh, way of oppression and, and control and and really enforces a certain worldview because language contains a certain world way of seeing reality really and so tell us about the 
American Indian languages and how important that is for regaining mental health and this process of decolonialization that we're talking about? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. Uh, I'm speaking uh, with respect to uh, my Yakima friends. I, I'm currently speaking in a borrowed language uh, in, in in relation to their own their own language. But uh, there's many Yakima people who don't uh, necessarily know uh, their own language or know their uh, languages. There are many Native people who don't know uh, their own Native language. And I think that's because... Uh, the, early on, it was recognized that uh, not only could Native people communicate in secret because uh, government authorities didn't understand these languages frequently, but also um, I think on a on a more on a deeper level that these languages um, have a, a different world contain a different world view, um, and uh, you know not being fluent in Yakama language or for that matter Cherokee language, I can still you know, reflect on some of the things I've been talked to about uh, the languages as I've gotten to know uh, Levina Mykala, Levina Wilkins, uh, program manager at Yakima Nation Language Programs. And she talks about how strongly descriptive the words are that that are inside her, her home language, uh, which she grew up speaking. And uh, if I was to look at uh, one of the words, Pinya Iwat Kwa'alani, which is one of my favorites to say, and it's one of the only ones I seem to say with any form of accuracy, although there's probably people out there who are cringing right now. Uh, that That is a word that denotes, you know, in the, the borrowed language of English, he or she gives it all away. And th- that speaks to a kind of humility uh, alongside a kind of service to others that involves both self-sacrifice and leadership. I think that uh, if you think in terms of a model of leadership that involves uh, simultaneously service, humility, and uh, self-sacrifice, and and when uh, this is explained to me, of course, my kala is always clear to say I can't quite get at it in English language, it speaks to, wow, what do we have to learn from that language in uh, the broader perspective with what's going on in Washington, D.C. right now? You find that, uh, you know, within these languages, there's a lot of appreciation for an underlying uh, creator or creator principle that gives rise to every being and every life form and every object that you see. And in the simu- uh, simultaneously, there's no necessary distinction between subject and object as we have in Western language and English language, where uh, you know the self is seen as so uh, as separate from the world around oneself. So, And by the way, if you think about that in terms of mental health, what that means is that it's much easier to uh, in a uh, in a world that's separated between subject and object, it's much easier to locate pathology in the subject as a, as opposed to seeing the subject in the context of a bunch of interdependent, interconnected phenomena. I found that the Western notion of balance between, uh, say, uh, four directions of uh, heart, body, mind, spirit, that is coming into balance between those different parts of oneself is much more accessible than thinking in terms of deficiency, impairment, something's wrong with you. And those are the kinds of things that come at people from a Western mental health perspective. Another word that um, we have from Niktawakt virtues is Wapitatatawakt, which I know I'm saying poorly. Wapitatawakt uh, refers to uh, service to community and service to family. 
But it gets at something much more deep than that, which has to do with always recognizing one's own interconnectedness and interdependence with others in everything you do. And so what does that impact? apply from a mental health perspective, people who feel disenfranchised, people who uh, receive a sense that they're invisible when they walk down our city streets, uh, that they don't exist, uh, that's fairly crazy making. Uh, if we had Wapitatawak in our urban communities, we might see that people would be responded to in a much different way. They would be recognized and uh, legitimized as fellow human beings. Okay, so this virtue that Levina came up with is uh, really important in helping a person think about restoring their own sense of connection to others and their own sense of um, being seamlessly integrated into the, the community itself. David, we've been talking a lot about the transformation and the potential for change in Indian country. And and at the same time, what do you what do you think that Indian country has to offer the rest of American society in terms of helping the rest of, of U.S. culture to go through change and transformation. What, what does it have to offer? Well, I want to respond to that question first by uh, mentioning just how offensive and upsetting it is for Native people to uh, witness or see their uh, cultural practices appropriated by people who are not part of their community and have no connection to their community. And this is something that people profiteer off of, people write books about, uh, the New Age shaman, uh, the plastic shaman. I think people should be extremely wary of the idea that I would have any, uh, I would approve of that or think of that, that that was a good thing because I think that's a very ugly phenomena that's going on. I think also, though, it's, a, it's good to look a little bit beneath that and talk about the kind of longing that is being reflected when those kinds of uh, movements and attempts at cultural appropriation happen. They're both an undoing of a colonial experience and what actually went down and what actually happened to uh, people in Indian country. And they kind of another form of revisionism, but they also reflect a longing, a kind of desire to sort of a reverse assimilation. I wish that I could somehow, if you look at Dances with Wolves, for example, I wish that I could, you know, as a Euro, Euro-American, I could somehow become Indian, you know, thereby undoing the history of oppression and, and colonization that's happened. But there's more to it than that, I think, also that my own experience, and this is just purely my own personal view and my own spiritual journey, is that Native people, indigenous people worldwide, people who uh, we identify as the people who have suffered the most from colonialism and suffered the most from having to defend and retain and keep even in hiding and at the risk of going to prison or being subjected to uh, violence, have held on to ways of being human and ways of exploring life and learning about the world. For centuries and centuries, they've sustained these ways in the face of all this coming at them. And I think in that way, um, once you come to know uh, some of these practices and some of the ways that people uh, approach the world, they're so admirable that they can't help but affect you and cause you to see your own life and how you want to live in a different way. I think also there's a way in which, you know, looking at indigenous cultures from the perspective of, of European uh, culture, we can tend to romanticize those cultures and say, oh, well, the, the way that Native people were treated by the tribes, the way that they, that they treated mental health problems or the way that they um, dealt with um, 
uh, conflict or the way that they dealt with the earth was always so much better. And if only we could just go back to this romantic uh, reality. But actually, it turns out that cultures are cultures wherever they are, and there's good qualities and bad qualities, and things are complicated. I remember having a conversation uh, with Levina about uh, child abuse, and I asked her, Kala, come on, you know, are you saying that there was never any incidents of uh, child abuse, uh, sexual abuse in, uh, in the Akaman uh, community uh, prior to the coming of the Europeans? And she looked at me for a moment, and then she, uh, uh, as I recall, she told me, well, yes, uh, occasionally, every now and then, there might be such an instance, but provided the elders were in agreement, the person the per- who perpetrated that wouldn't live uh, past sundown. So one thing that you hear from people uh, among the elders at Yakima Nation is a reference a very constant reference to the unwritten laws. And um, uh, that's an important thing to think about. For example, there was no necessity, according to uh, reports of policemen or a police-type entity. And so when police were brought in and the formation of tribal police uh, to try to uh, force people, for example, to give up their children to the boarding schools, to forcibly kidnap their children. Uh, This was an entirely foreign entity. Uh, When uh, people were arrested to be tied up uh, by handcuffs and this sort of thing was a foreign experience to them. In fact, uh, the word uh, walik aklama, uh, which is Yakima word for policeman, means one who ties another up in bondage. There is this romanticizing of what went on uh, in the past in Indian country, I, I do think that we need to be careful to recognize people in Indian country uh, for the real humanity that they contain and who they are uh, when they, we talk to them and interact with them and get to know them. I had a mentor in graduate school who, who used to give us the caveat, you know, beware the tyranny of your benevolence. And uh, I think that many of the things that come towards Native people from a mental health standpoint are tyranny disguised in the form of benevolence. So we have to really, um, if we're going to be conscientious, take all that apart and uh, do the best we can to, in partnership and collaboration with Native people, to reconstruct it in a way that's suitable to them and seems to be a source of help. David, we are just about out of time. Uh, Remind us about your book and also tell us how people can get in touch with you. Sure. Uh, my website is uh, tessasdance.com. That's T-E-S-S-A-S-D-A-N-C-E, all one word, dot com. And if people want to write me, it's uh, I have to uh, spell it out for you. It's David Walker, all one word, D-A-V-I-D-W-A-L-K-E-R, at anisahoney.com. And that's spelled A-N-I-S-A-H. O-N-I.com. It's a Cherokee word, refers to the blue medicine people who were the uh, protectors of children. David Walker, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thanks very much for having me, Will. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to an interview with David Walker. David is a clinical psychologist and mixed-blood Cherokee Indian who has worked with the 14 confederated tribes and bands of the Yakima Nation in Washington State for the last 14 years and has worked as a psychologist for the Indian Health Service. He's a singer, songwriter, and writer whose latest book is called Tessa's Dance. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. 
Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producers Leia Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Listen on the internet at madnessradio.net and on iTunes. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.